Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 60. It is May. It's May. I'm very proud of that edit. Might be one of the top five things I'm most proud of. B93, we played that relentlessly this morning. It is May 1st, and it's snowing outside. Tensions are high in southeastern Wisconsin with snow maps on May 1st. We will break down the draft weekend for the Packers. The draft did not end on Thursday, and despite the freakout on Packer Twitter, Goody did get Jordan Love some weapons, a lot of them, on day two. We will recap that. We'll talk about the Brewers series with the Angels. My wife Lindsay and I went to our first game in the pitch clock era at AmFam Field. It's even better when you're there. It's great on TV. It's even better when you're there. We will break down a series win day off today as they get set to head out to Colorado and San Francisco for a six-game trip. And we'll talk a little NBA. Bucks fans, myself included, still reeling from the way that season ended. We did learn about Coach Mike Budenholzer going through some stuff off the court that we did not know at the end of that series against Miami. We can talk a little bit about the other games, too. Steph Curry dropped a 50-burger on the road in Game 7. Does he not get talked about enough as one of the all-time greats? I don't know that he does. We'll break all that down. And speaking of the Bucks, Boston Bruins misery, misery loves company, helped me feel a little bit better about the Bucks situation. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes! The Bruins yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin! Record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle! He looks, he throws, it's intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger! Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down! Swinging fly ball in the right center, Broxton is there! We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, we've got snow flying outside this morning. I was just about set to shut her down on a Sunday night, and I saw Fox 6 channel in Milwaukee. They posted a weather map on April 30th going into May 1st of possible snow accumulation in Sheboygan and Fond du Lac. They had an inch for us or one to three in some parts of our county. Ridiculous. I think even the gatekeepers of when you can complain about winter weather, you know, in this area of the country, if you, especially if you grew up in Wisconsin, you know this. Once you get to March or April, people get pretty frustrated when we're talking about snowstorms and wind chills and things like that. But then you also have another group of people in March and April that will then yell at those people that are upset about it and say, ah, it's Wisconsin, it's the Midwest, what are you, come on. This is a part of being in Wisconsin. We know this happens every year. Why complain about it? it happens every year? They are the gatekeepers of when you can complain about winter weather in Wisconsin. I think even the gatekeepers are going to allow some complaining when it's snowing on May 1st. We did do for a trivia question on B93. It must have been in April. Remember, we had that run from February, pretty much all of March and April, where it was a Thursday snowstorm. Every Thursday it felt like, or Wednesday into Thursday, or Thursday into Friday. Thursday was always the day when a snowstorm would hit. 
and we did a trivia question. It must, must have been in April about the latest measurable snow in the history of the state. I had to go Milwaukee County stats because I couldn't find the Sheboygan County stats. But it's May 10th. May 10th is the latest measurable snow. I think it was in 1991 or 92. There was a three-inch accumulation of snow in Milwaukee County. Well, we're getting close. We're getting close to that here on May 1st. We're only a week and a half away. We may as well, we may as well, golf swing, set a record. If we're going to have this kind of weather this late in the year, you may as well set some kind of a record. May 1st, and snow is flying as we're recording this podcast, or a wintry mix is flying outside as we're recording this podcast. Yeah, the Bruins, real quick, we'll get more into the Bucks. Well, I guess we can just talk about it. It's a sad tidbit that we didn't know about the series in Miami, but before that, the Bruins yesterday, the Boston Bruins, I don't follow a ton of the NHL. There was a little run there I had in 2013 and 2014 where I started to get when I still had cable TV, and I feel like going back to that with the way things are right now. There's so many apps. i got to click on a million different things. I just want to watch TV. Anyway, that's another debate and another rant for another day. But I had at one point when we still had AT&T, U-verse or whatever, I had FSN. God bless FSN. Bring it back. I had FSN, and then I had an FSN alternate channel, and it was all Minnesota stuff. I don't know why we got that, but we did. And because of that, I had access to all of the Minnesota Wild games. And for about two years there, 2013, 2014, maybe a little bit into 2015, I really kind of got into it. The Bucks being horrible played a big factor in that. That was the year 2013, the first year with Giannis where they won 15 games, looked like the franchise was going to leave, and I was making other plans. I thought, I've got to find something to watch. If the Bucks leave, I can't watch the NBA anymore. I'll be too distraught. I would, but you know what I mean. I've got to find another thing to watch this time of year. And I really did get into wild hockey for a little bit there, but then we cut the cord and I kind of lost track of it. So I don't follow it too closely anymore. But the Boston Bruins this year, they, like the Bucks, were the number one overall seed in the NHL playoffs. And not only were they the number one overall seed, they were a record-setting team, historically great team. They had the most points scored in a regular season ever in the NHL. I know you can't quite correlate that to wins but in the NBA, but if you said the 72-win Bulls would lose in the first round or the 73-win Warriors would lose in the first round, imagine if the Bucks would have won 70 games and lost the way they did in that first round. That's how good that Bruins team is. And another part of this conversation, you're kind of comparing apples to oranges in that in the NHL, the playoffs seem like much more of a crapshoot than they are in the NBA. That's changing now, obviously, in the NBA. But you see quite a bit in 8 over a 1 or a 7 over a 2 or a 6 over a 3. 8 over 1 does not happen a lot in the NBA. Those kinds of upsets don't really happen as much as they happen in the NHL. That's a part of the conversation, too. But to have a historically great team taking on a very mediocre Florida Panthers team, the 8th seed, and the Bruins had a 3-1 to series lead. The solace I take with the Bucks a little bit is that at least they didn't blow it like that. They were just never in it. They never were in it at any point when you look back at it, really. They had a 3-1 to series lead and lost three in a row, including two on their home ice and Game 7 in overtime yesterday. I was scrolling through. I do follow a lot of the Barstool sports stuff on Twitter, and a lot of those guys are all Boston guys and Bruins fans, so because I follow a lot of that stuff, I see a lot of Bruins Twitter and I did take some comfort in their misery, I have to admit. When that game ended yesterday, I wasn't even really aware of what was happening until I hopped onto Twitter Sunday night. 
And I saw a bunch of those posts and thought, you know what? This makes me feel a little bit better. Just a little bit. Not a lot of bit. Just a little bit. This is the misery loves company situation. It made me feel a little bit better that Bruins lost yesterday. At least we weren't a historically great NBA team losing in the first round to an eight seed. Yeah, the Bucks. the news that came out, it must have been on Friday. It was either Friday or Saturday. The news of Coach Budenholzer's brother passing. I guess he passed away following a car accident, just a tragedy, on Game 4, right before Game 4, which would have been Monday of last week. Now, look, we talked a lot on the podcast, and I guess knowing this piece of context now, there are some things I wish I could probably go back and take out of there. We just didn't know. We had no idea he was going through something like that. I'm sure he didn't want anybody to know that. And it was Darvin Ham, the Lakers head coach, former Bucks assistant, first year in L.A., after the Lakers win over the weekend, he was talking about that postgame, and he even apologized and said as he dropped that tidbit out there that well, maybe he doesn't want anybody to know, but now that I said it, I can't reel it back in. You can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. But that's something we didn't know. That's a backdrop we didn't know. Now, look, you get into a whole emotional conversation of does this impact how Bucks fans feel about Budenholzer or some of the decisions made in those games. Here's what I'll say. I think it is now more understandable some of the things, especially late in game four and in game five, not calling a timeout with half a second left or not calling a timeout late, just little things like that. Anybody who's ever lost somebody that's dear to them, very close, I'm talking real close family or friends, you know in the immediacy of that loss, not everything is clicking in your brain. And even sometimes well beyond the immediacy, sometimes it's months before you start to feel even somewhat normal again. And there are some losses you just never feel normal again afterwards. But it just makes it a little clearer when you look at some of the nuanced things that were missed in those games. Yeah, if your head coach is going through something that traumatic and that sad, it's understandable that some of these things probably weren't crossing his brain with the same type of quickness that they would typically. But that is a part of the story. I don't know how that changes anything moving forward. Sadly, it probably doesn't. And I don't know how Bucks fans, if this changes your opinion on what you want them to do with Bud or that should even be a part of the conversation. But I do think that backdrop gives us a little more context into some of the mistakes that were made late in those games. And our hearts go out to Bud. Again, if you've ever been through a loss like that, you kind of know what he's going through and you don't wish it on anybody. I wouldn't wish that kind of loss, that kind of pain on my worst enemy. And he's going through that right now. That was a little extra piece of information that we did not know coming out of the end of that Heat series. Other NBA stuff, I did have my eye on that stupid Heat-Knicks game one just to see if the Heat would keep shooting as hot as they did against the Bucks. They didn't, which you knew they wouldn't. I think they shot 45%, which is still not bad. 34%, though, or 35%, more their norm from beyond the arc. I was only paying attention to it. I was calling some college baseball yesterday, so I was only paying attention to it on the stat tracker. I didn't see what the Knicks did defensively, but Jimmy Butler, who apparently hurt himself in that game, too, he still led the Heat to a game one win on the road, 108 to 101. The other big one yesterday was Steph Curry dropping a 50 burger, going to Chick fil A. I don't know. Dropping 50 in a Game 7 win on the road. Warriors had the chance to close that King series out at home in Game 6 and lost. And then you've got to go back to that rabid crowd in Sacramento. But that Warriors team is so battle-tested. That didn't phase them at all. They won by 20 and Steph drops 50 in a game-winning Game 7 on the road. It did get me thinking on my drive to work this morning about Steph Curry. We talk about Jordan as the GOAT and LeBron's right there, 1B, and he is. And if LeBron wins one this year. He's got to be maybe getting close. I don't know. Just because of the Jordan 6-0 in the finals, it's hard for me to ever put LeBron in front of him. 
But if LeBron wins a second ring in L.A., boy, that would he'd be getting real close. We'd be edging above 1B at that point. But there's always all these conversations about the GOAT in all sports, but especially in the NBA. I don't feel like Steph Curry does not get enough mention that conversation. Is he top 10 all time? He has four rings now after they won last year. He's got finals MVPs. He's got a unanimous NBA MVP. Maybe because he's a smaller in stature guy, he doesn't get the attention of guys like LeBron or even Giannis after he won that title and was the finals MVP two years ago. There was some talk about would he be entering the conversation for top 25, top 20 all time if he wins a few more rings? Could he be in the GOAT conversation or top five? I'm not sure Steph Curry gets enough run in that talk. He's not the greatest of all time, but is he top 10? Is he top five? Is he up there with Magic now and Larry Bird? I've said this on this podcast before. One of my favorite basketball books is the Bill Simmons Big Book of Basketball. He's done some addendums to it on different articles on The Ringer where he does go in that book from 1 to 100 or 100 down to 1 of the greatest of all time. I forget who he had at number 1. He must have had Jordan. Bill Russell might have been number two. Wilt's on there. But where does Steph Curry factor into that? Four rings, MVPs, finals MVPs, always seems to come up clutch. Beat Wisconsin with Davidson. Who would have thought when that game happened, even though as a Wisconsin fan remembering that NCAA tournament game, you had a real ominous feeling because of all the talk around Steph Curry and the last name, and we knew how impactful his dad was in the NBA. He was a former Buck for a year or two there. You didn't have a great feeling going to that game based on the narrative, and then Steph went nuclear and won that game, but never in a million years would I have ever thought that we'd be having a discussion of Steph Curry being a top 10 maybe or top 15, top 10, top 5 all-time NBA player. Hey, remember when the Warriors apparently, the rumors were, in that trade that sent Monte Ellis to the Bucks from the Warriors and sent Bogut to San Francisco? There are rumors that one of the initial offers of that deal was Steph Curry coming back to Milwaukee. And the Bucks said, no thanks. Because <laughs> at that time, he was still so small, he couldn't defend, he had injury issues. He wasn't Steph Curry yet. That was 2012 or 2011. But that apparently was on the table, and the Bucks said, pass. <laughs> we don't want that guy. Give us Monte Ellis. We're going to put Monte Ellis next to Brandon Jennings. Who's going to stop us? Answer, everybody. Everybody's going to stop you, and they're not going to stop anyone. But Steph Curry, just another chapter in that guy's legacy. Incredible. All right, let's talk about, do you want to go draft or brewers? We'll go Packer draft recap. There's not a ton to really recap because we don't know how this is going to play out until at least after this year, or at least once you get to training camp, you can speculate, but nobody knows. That's why these draft grades are always preposterous, and even though they are, I read them. I read three or four different draft grade articles, and a lot of them gave the Packers a B or a B-plus or an A-minus. But you don't know. Nobody knows. We have to see how this all plays out over the course of a year or two. You never know how good a draft was ultimately until three or four years after that draft. That's when the draft grade should really come out. You look back at Goody's first draft, I think only one player is still in the league. And at the time, we all thought that was a pretty good draft. But they got Lucas Van Ness from Iowa. In round one, Packer Twitter freaked out about that, getting a defensive end or an edge rusher when, oh, there was JSN was there and all these different weapons for Jordan Love you could have drafted and they didn't. And what did we say on Friday's podcast? The draft did not end on Thursday. You get more than one pick. And the Packers eventually traded back a bunch and ended up having fourth, four seventh rounders. That's very Goody. That's a part of Goody and Ted Thompson. That has not changed really at all since the changing of the guard there at GM. 
Both of them, and a lot of GMs do. It's not just them. Not just a Packer thing, but a lot of GMs love to hoard those late picks, move back a few spots in the third round, pick up an extra seventh rounder or two. And then today is going to be the undrafted free agent Palooza. I really feel like guys like Goody or GMs like that, this is really their day that they love. This is the day where you go to Walgreens the day after Halloween. This is November 1st. You go to Walgreens the day after Halloween, and all of your candy is 75% off. That's the day after the draft wraps up. Sunday, yesterday, or Monday, where you can go and take a look at all the guys that didn't go, all the candy that wasn't sold, and then you get them at a discount. This is the day for Goody. But they get three weapons right away, day two. They get the tight end from Oregon State, Luke McDonald. The measurables are great. The RAS score is great. Will that translate to the games? We won't know until September or October. But they get him a big tight end who seems to have some separation, some athleticism, probably more than any tight end we've had since Jermichael Finley. They get him with that first second-round pick. Then they do get a wide receiver, Jaden Reed out of Michigan State. Had pretty good numbers at Michigan State. He's more of a slot guy, it seems like. His speed wasn't great on the 40-yard dash, but does that really even matter? You love it when you can say, oh, he ran a 4-2 or a 4-2-5 or a 4-3-40. That gets everybody excited. But how does that translate into a game? How many times in a game is a wide receiver just on a dead sprint with nobody touching him? Where does that factor in? Breakaway speed I can see when you get behind somebody and the pass is on the money and you've got to stay away from a safety or juke somebody and have some open space. But ultimately, how that 40-yard dash time plays in actual games, I don't know. But Jaden Reed, wide receiver, second round, and as we talked about on Friday, and Leroy Butler, who announced that pick, said as he was announcing at the podium, the Packers have a tremendous amount of success in the second round with guys like Jordy Nelson and Devontae Adams and Greg Jennings over the years. Jaden Reed out of Michigan State. It was interesting when they were tweeting on the official Packer Twitter account, they were tweeting the updates, and they were putting Photoshopped jerseys up of what these players' names will look like on green and gold with their number. Jaden Reed wore number one at Michigan State, and the picture they put up was of a Reed in the green jersey with number one. And that got Packer Twitter going and Packer Facebook going because nobody has worn number one since Curly Lambeau. Even though it's not retired, and I don't know why they just don't retire it. The Packers don't have that many retired jerseys. That is exclusive company. Whereas on the flip side, you've got a franchise like the Bears, and the Bears and the Packers have been around as long as each other, and the Giants. If you think about those historic franchises that have been around since the 20s, the Bears have the opposite problem. They're retiring everybody's jersey, and they're going to get to a point where they're going to have to unretire some numbers. Could you imagine an unretiring ceremony at Soldier Field where they take Ditka's number off the Raptor, off the Raptors, or they pick who's the least likely of all the retired numbers now in Bears history? Who's the worst of the best? And then you take that jersey down and you give it to some rookie from the sixth round. They're going to run out of numbers. They're just going to flat run out of numbers. The Packers rarely retire anybody's number. Canadeo, number three, retired. Favre's number four. Don Hudson's 14. Stars, 15. Nitschke, 66. And Reggie White's 92. Eventually, Rodgers, 12, will be retired. But they have never retired the number one. It's just sort of been unofficially retired. And the last guy to wear it was the founder of the franchise or one of the founders of the franchise, along with George Calhoun, who does not get enough run as one of the founders of the franchise. They're never going to put a statue of the Green Bay Press-Gazette sports editor, George Calhoun. But his money and his publicity in the paper at a time when nobody really cared about the NFL, that's as big as anything in the history of Packer football. Just a little tidbit for you there. Shout out George Calhoun. 
if any of the Calhoun family tree is listening. But they've never used it or issued it since Curly Lambeau last wore it, the number one. But that got people talking, and then quickly, about an hour or two later, Packer Twitter tweeted out a picture of the number 11. <laughs> For Jaden Reed, they're not going to give him, of all the people, they're not going to give a rookie number one. But they get Jaden Reed, then they get another tight end in the third round, Tucker Craft with the 78th pick. Then they go defensive line, Colby Wooden out of Auburn to help up front. They did take a quarterback. The only debate or conversation about this pick, I think we all figured at some point on day three they were going to have to get a quarterback because who's the only other quarterback on the roster? I don't even know. Jordan Love is your starter. Who's the other guy? Do they have another guy? They had to pick somebody. They had to get somebody young in there, and they draft Sean Clifford from Penn State. In all the Penn State games I've watched, I wouldn't say he blew my doors off. I wouldn't say I was overly impressed or thought, oh, man, that guy's going to go early. Most NFL analysts, the national pundits on Twitter, were saying this was a guy we didn't even have on the board. This was a guy that was expected to be in the 75% off Halloween candy cart at the front of the register by at a Walgreens or a Target. Nobody really had him on a draft board. That was the unusual part that they spent a fifth-round pick on a guy that many people felt would be there today or Sunday or Monday once the draft is over. But they clearly liked him. They get that quarterback, Clifford, from Penn State in round five. They had another wide receiver, Dontavian Wicks out of Virginia. Carl Brooks then in the sixth round. Edge rusher from Bowling Green. This was one that sort of signaled to me that we might be done with Mason Crosby. Anders Carlson, kicker from Auburn. Didn't have a great year at Auburn. Daniel Carlson is his brother who kicks for the Raiders, I'm pretty sure, in Vegas. He's got a big leg. He was only 72% in college. It's possible they draft him and then it's going to be a competition. But if you're going to give Crosby any kind of money, Crosby's the guy, right? And then I wouldn't think you'd waste a six-round pick on Carlson. It just, that's the last guy. Crosby would be the last guy. I know we've moved on now from Aaron Rodgers. That era is over. Packers put a very touching two-minute tribute up to Aaron Rodgers or two-and-a-half-minute video tribute. Can I just say something real quick about Aaron Rodgers? Just real quick. I never got into the -the off-the-field stuff, criticizing him. I mean, I'd poke a joke here or two or make fun of it once in a while, the ayahuasca tea and all that stuff. I never really truly cared about that stuff the way some people were very truly and authentically annoyed by some of the off the field stuff with Aaron Rodgers and the way he looked and growing the hair out and all that stuff. I, who cares at the end of the day? Who cares my gorilla monsoon? Who cares? Who cares? There it is. But I will say this. He was at the Rangers playoff game over the weekend with Lazard and then he was at the Knicks Heat game at Madison Square Garden. He looks great. <laughs> it just kind of made me a little mad. He got a haircut. He looks to be in a little bit better shape. He's at OTAs. Just a few little annoyances there for me because his last two or three years in Green Bay, he did sort of look like somebody from Central Casting that would be in an Occupy Wall Street documentary with the long hair and just look greasy and unkempt. He looks great in New York. Looks like he's going to be on the cover of GQ. Anyway. But the Rodgers era is over. Crosby would be the last link to that Super Bowl 45 team and the Rodgers era. But with the drafting of Carlson, you wonder if, in fact, we are moved on. It feels like we have been heading in that direction with Crosby. And Goody, at some point in the offseason, did address that in one of those interviews he did outside of his car, which was primarily about Rodgers, but then maybe somebody slipped in one question about Crosby. And essentially, he said, we'd love to have him back, but cap-wise, it's going to be very difficult. Well, this draft pick makes me think that we are maybe moving on from that, too. And the last pick was, or last four picks, all in the seventh round, Carrington Valentine, cornerback from Kentucky, Lou Nichols, Lou, yeah, Lou, (laughs) running back from Central Michigan. It's a deep Seinfeld cut. 
He looks like a tank. He is built squat and thick. That guy could damage you if he runs you over. If he makes the team, running back from Central Michigan. People are very excited about Anthony Johnson in the seventh round, the corner from Iowa State, who might profile more as a safety, which the Packers do need. And then Grant DuBose, is that how you say it? Wide receiver from Charlotte was the final pick of the draft. Again, we're going to have no idea whether this was a fruitful draft or a wasteland, at least not until the end of this upcoming year and really not until the end of probably the 2024 or 2025 season. But a lot of the draft grades, if you subscribe to that, that's something you care about. Have them in the B, B plus, A minus range. We'll give the Strange Brew A plus. I forgot there was an A. Let's give him an A plus plus. I forgot there was an A plus plus. But that's the draft. It all wraps up. They got a lot of help on the defensive line, and they did give Jordan Love more options. They drafted three wide receivers and two tight ends and a running back, some weapons on offense as well as that came to a close on Saturday. Still wish we had the original draft schedule back the Saturday, Sunday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Some of my favorite days in college up in Stevens Point were those NFL draft Saturdays where you get the grill out at noon, get the keg tap, get a quarter barrel tap, sitting on the porch, watching the draft on the TV, VCR combo, sitting in the living room. It transitioned right into a Brewer game. If it was a nice spring day, God, I missed that. But that wrapped up on Saturday, and now we get set for the wait until OTAs and training camp gets underway. And then finally today, we'll talk about the Brewers series with the Angels. They take the series, had a chance for the sweep on Sunday. Couldn't get that done. Couldn't get the offense going against a guy with a 10 ERA. Very Brewers, very on-brand on Sunday. Guy coming in with a 10.38 ERA. Brewers couldn't touch him. They got three hit. They lose 3 nothing. But they take the series. And that's what we said heading into the weekend. It's been a disappointing homestand. They go 4-5 and five on the homestand. They did have a chance if they could have won that game on Sunday to turn that into a winning homestand. Couldn't get that done. Four and five homestand, not what you want against that level of competition. The Red Sox, the Tigers, and the Angels, especially coming off of a seven and three West Coast trip where they were taking care of very talented teams. But that's baseball, babe. As they say, that's baseball. Sometimes it goes like that. Just win series. Focus on winning every series. They win the series. My wife and I went on Saturday. It was the first game we've been to this year, and we had to go. I wanted to see Otani and Trout. They're going to be here more now, but Trout hadn't been in Milwaukee since 2016. Otani had never been there. And now with the new scheduling, the Brewers will be in L.A. taking on the Angels next year, and they'll be right back at AmFam Field in 2025. So you're not going to have to wait seven or eight years to see these franchises and see these players. But there was a lot of curiosity. There were 40,000 people there on Saturday night in April, which is pretty good. They did do a hoodie giveaway, one of those thin T-shirt hoodies. You can always bring in people for that. But I believe most people were there like we were to go see Otani and go see Mike Trout. And it was a classic Angels game. It was Shohei Otani had three hits and two stolen bases. Mike Trout had two home runs, almost had four, and had five driven in on three hits, and the Angels lost. It is remarkable that the Angels have, by almost every measure, the two best players in baseball, Shohei Otani is the best two-way player ever since Babe Ruth. And there are not a lot of pitcher hitters anymore. Remember Brooks Kieschnick? <laughs> Shout out Brooks Kieschnick for the Brewer degenerates out there. Remember, they would drive him in from the bullpen. He was a relief pitcher back in the early 2000s. They'd drive him in in that bullpen card if they needed him to pinch hit. But Otani's great at both. He's an all-star pitcher and an all-star hitter and an MVP hitter. We're just never going to see a guy like this ever again. He's an asteroid that hit Earth. But him and Trout, by almost every measure, are either the top two or top two of the top three or four in baseball. And the Angels every year finish 74 and 88. I will never understand 
how that happens. The pitching hasn't been good. They're giving Trout a ton of money. They have a bunch of money. They are in L.A. It's a little different. They're more toward Anaheim. It's not necessarily L.A. TV money the way the Dodgers have it. But they've got billionaire owners, and they're giving a king's ransom to Trout, and we'll see if Otani stays. Is he up at the end of next year? They're talking about maybe trading him this year because it's toward the end of his contract. Maybe that happens. They've never really had the pitching. They've invested some money on that side of the baseball, of that side of the team, but it's just insane to me that you'd have the two best players and just never compete. Trout has been in the playoffs one time. That is a travesty. He's Mickey Mantle. I love you, Mickey. I love you. He is a modern-day Mickey Mantle. Imagine if Mickey Mantle went to one playoff series in his career and was swept. That's what happened. I just I can't wrap my brain around that amount of talent in those two guys, and the team never wins a thing. But it was a classic Angels game. Mike Trout on those two home runs, and again, he could have had four. He could have had. He just missed on two others. I have never seen, well, I've probably seen it, maybe Prince, but it's been a long time since I've seen a ball jump off a bat like that. Those two home runs, there was not a shadow of a doubt that those were gone. The way that ball hit off of his bat, leapt off of his bat, it's been a long, long time since I've seen a ball do that. It probably was Prince or Braun, I guess, maybe. Maybe he had a similar situation pre HGH or whatever he was on, whatever he was doing, whatever gummies he was taking. Maybe a few times here and there, but it felt like every at-bat, his bat is so quick. So it was fun. It was fun to see them, and I did love the pitch clock in person. I wondered, because I've been an advocate of it, even though I consider myself a traditionalist in almost every sense of the word at every other stage of life, but it's just made the game so much more palatable on TV. It goes quicker. You're not sitting there for three and a half hours. My My... Thought was I might not love it at games because when you're at a game, it is more conversational and there's more fun in between innings and you can go and take a leisurely stroll and get some food or check out all the new food stops and you don't miss a whole lot of stuff. You go to the bathroom. I wondered how I would feel about that at the game and I loved it. (laughs) I just loved it. I said on the air today, my wife and I probably went to, and we used to be 20-pack people. We We would go to 20-plus games a year. And it's not that it's not an affordability thing. It's just that it's a time thing and getting down there and making the drive and the parking and you walk in, you got to deal with a bunch of bozos. It's just a whole thing. Well, we probably went to seven or eight games last year, and I bet we stayed for the whole game twice. And last on Saturday, we did. We stayed for the whole game. It was a two-hour and 40-minute game. We got to see Corbin Burns. We got to see Trout home runs and Shohei Otani hitting the baseball. The Brewers got a win. And we were out of there in two hours and 40 minutes. We were back home by 9.30. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. We may go to weeknight games. I cannot remember the last Tuesday or Wednesday night or Thursday night game that I've been to where you would actually want to go and not worry about, oh, God, i got to work tomorrow. What time are we going to get back? And there's construction on 43. And I hate that I'm becoming that guy. I really do. I think that comes a little bit with age probably. But I would actually consider going to a Tuesday night game now and have it not wreck the rest of your week where you're getting home at midnight and then you can't recover. Now that the games are two and a half hours or 240 or 245 or even three on the high side, that's something that I would actually realistically consider. It was great. It was a great time. I will say if you go to get a beer and you do wander around, you could miss two innings. You just have to know that. And the more games you go to with the pitch clock, people will get used to that. And they'll adjust how they watch the game and when they go to get their beer and when they go to get their hot dog or get there a little bit earlier and get their food before the game. People will adjust and adapt to that. But just a fair warning if you haven't been to a game yet, 
if you are going to get up after the third inning and go for your typical stroll and take a look at the food and get a drink and wander around, you might miss three innings. But it was beautiful. Brewers get the series win. Tidbit on Brandon Woodruff. At the end of the game, they interviewed him. He had an update from his doctors on the shoulder. It is going to be a while yet, but at least it feels as though we know now exactly what it is and how long he'll be out. They are expecting he will be out until the end of June. It's a long time. He's been out for two weeks already. You've been without one of your co-aces for two weeks, and you're going to be without him for at least two months. They're hoping to have him back in early July. The good news is his season is not done, and he should be back before the All-Star break. And that's when things really ramp up. I know every game matters, and we learned last year, you miss the playoffs by a game, John. Every game matters. I get all that. But that's when things really start to crescendo a bit in Major League Baseball. And you should have him back. And then you should also have pretty good knowledge or a good feeling of where he's at before the deadline where you may have to decide what move you need to make. Maybe you need to get a starting pitcher of higher caliber because he's not quite there yet. All of that information should be at their fingertips by the time they get to the trade deadline. That should give them about a month of Woodruff being back to know where we're at with Woodruff. Colin Ray was pretty good yesterday. Only gave up a couple runs, nine strikeouts. He'll continue to make spot starts in the meantime. But we did get that update on Woodruff as well. So they are off today. They'll be in Denver on Tuesday taking on the Rockies. They're taking on two teams well below 500. As we learned on this homestand, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot, especially this early in the year. But they're in Colorado Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, in San Francisco, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which is nice because I can actually watch the games because they're not middle-of-the-week West Coast games. But a six-game trip before returning home with the Dodgers at AmFam Field on Monday. On Friday, we will recap the Brewer Week. These podcasts will probably get a little bit shorter now that we're out of the NFL draft and the Bucs season ended unceremoniously and much earlier than expected. A lot of Brewers talk for the rest of the summer, of course, but I would expect we've been on the 30, 35-minute side here for a while. I would expect we're going to be more on the 20, 25-minute side as we start to get to just baseball happening. But before you know it, training camp and Badger football, God, we need the Luke Fickle era. With the way the Bucks season ended, we need the Luke Fickle era to be as advertised more than anything. But I would imagine for a while we'll be scaling back a little bit more on how long these podcasts are because there's just not enough stuff out there. We'll see. We'll chat with you Friday. Have a good work week.